Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Good day. My name is Motero Brody, and I'm a legal research and advocacy officer at Section 27. Our areas of work are health and education rights, as well as environmental and climate justice. Section 27 is also a member of the Climate Justice Coalition. And today, we're joined by three excellent guests, one of which is a colleague of mine at Section 27, Matsidiso Lengwasa. We're also joined by Ali Akaji from 350africa.org. And then lastly, we're joined by Ellen Lorimer, who is representing the Adaptation Network, as well as Indigo Development and Change. Today's episode, we're going to have a, a robust conversation as we unpack the role of human rights budgeting in the response to climate change. We will do this with a focus on adaptation and delve into the international and local obligations in funding climate adaptation. We'll also touch on the need for democratizing these processes and placing people at the center. I'd like to throw the question to you around what it is that really inspired you to become a climate justice or a budget activist. Of all the career options that you had in front of you, you went for this particular one. Why is that? Let's start off with Ellen. Thanks, Matteo. So I come from an activist background. I grew up on development projects. So going into the NGO sector was a bit of a no-brainer for me. The question was which sector? And I guess my first internship and first job landed me in the climate sector. And um, it was one that really resonated with me, getting involved in some of the climate negotiations at the UN level in my 20s directed me more towards climate change adaptation, which is something that I think all stakeholders can agree on, that we need to shift our behaviors and our systems to adapt to the changes that are coming anyway, whereas what we do about the energy crisis is far more controversial and political. Um, so I've really enjoyed getting involved in the adaptation side. And to make adaptation happen, we need the funds to do so. So that's how I landed up in this area. Oh, very interesting. How lucky we are that this is where you find yourself. And for you, Tidi, what's your story? Um, <laughs> how did you end up here? Um, so for me, like the inspiration, particularly with climate justice um, and how it intersects with um, the realization of all socioeconomic rights and human rights is so I grew up in Whitbank Emma Latleni shout out to anyone from there is listening <laughs> um, and it's considered the most one of the most polluted areas in the world um, so I knew experientially I guess I'd say like the impact that you know like the intersection that climate like how in the environment impacts our realization of socioeconomic rights like education like schools going to school how that impacted like something that maybe other people take for granted like clean drinking water uh, so that was like the foundation and then you know going to university I was at Vids and fees must fall you know that really inspired <laughs> radical um 
shift on my part. Um, so after that experience with Fees Must Fall and just thinking about, you know, being involved in that, I just realized that a lot of the problems that we have in the world, like especially, you know, South Africa being such an unequal society, these are like man-made problems. And I just really believe in the power, like we can actually solve them. And I just think there's so much hardship. And even now with climate, there's so much, um, it, it seems so doom and gloom, but there's also a little bit of hope in my eyes that we can actually solve this problem. And we can, if we do it right, we could solve so many other problems and build back better. Thank you, Tiri. Um, and I like what you said there towards the end. Um, I don't think anyone can be an activist without hope. It's so central to the work that we do. Alia, how did you end up as a, as a climate justice activist, budget activist? Yeah, I think that growing up at the coast, um, in Durban, you know, we'd always been very active and I'd always been interested in the world around me. And so more academically, I studied geography and environmental sciences, but I think it was more learning about our economic system. And I think the interconnected struggles that come out of an extractive economic system that we had really inspired more action uh, and activism to to figure out solutions to the crisis and alternatives to the crisis that we have. And so it wasn't just about coming up with, you know, how to uh, put together renewable energy or what types of energy we need, but really figuring out the rules of the game that would enable just and, and equitable solutions. Thank you. Thank you, Alia. The other question, if I could just throw it back again, um, very briefly, if you could tell us about the work that you do in each of your organizations. Sidi, if we can start off with you at Section 27 as a budget um, analyst, what type of work do you do? So we're interested, so like the budget team, and I guess what I do, is um, interested in human rights budgeting, which we'll explore um, in this uh, podcast later. Uh, but really what Section 27 is all about, and I think you mentioned it in the introduction, is real like the, the human rights, particularly basic education and healthcare. So as we mentioned, like South Africa, it's a very unequal society. Um, and one of those legacies post-apartheid, what continues to plague our country is that many people don't have access to like you know there are many people who are left behind in terms of um access to to their constitutional rights of healthcare and education and now what brings me here to this podcast is that um we're realizing as an organization and we're part of very important coalitions and movements where we're realizing that the Climate crisis is not just affecting, you know, it's, it's not just about like the science and technology, but it's actually impacting the realization of the right to basic education and to healthcare. And the, you know, most impoverished people are most vulnerable to that experience. And also, you know, it's quite gendered. There's a gendered layer, um, where women are disproportionately affected. And so the work that I do is, analyzing the budget, advocating and recommending ways that we can restructure the national budget and use it as a tool to respond to social ills. And we're realizing now that the climate crisis is one of those phenomena that are exacerbating the social ills of inequality. Ellen, and in terms of your work, I know that it focuses on adaptation. Can you tell us why 
adaptation particularly and just generally what the organization works on? Great. So I wear several hats here. Mm. Um, the first is Indigo Development and Change, which is an NGO based in the Northern Cape that works on adaptation, biodiversity conservation and capacity development. My side of the work is focuses largely on the policy and networking side and linking local action to national and the international spheres. So we are this year the host of the Adaptation Network. Uh, which is a network we helped to establish some years ago, which brings together adaptation practitioners uh, from NGOs, but also individuals engaging from impl- local implementation to academia to policy spaces. Um, government officials join our network as well. And that's a space for sharing experiences and supporting implementation. And um, we are also part of uh, or run the regional hub for the Adaptation Fund Civil Society Organization Network and look at climate finance aspects. So we really are trying to bring together the threads of local adaptation, um, helping people to adapt to the changes, which is part of uh, development work, to national and international policy spheres. Oh, great. Alia? Yes. 350.org. Thanks. Um, so as you mentioned, 350.org is all about supporting and growing the strength of, of grassroots movements internationally. But uh, I'm based at um, the Africa office, so we do have a more regional focus. But the overall aim remains the same. And essentially, that is speaking truth to power and bringing the real uh, frontline impacts of climate change to to leadership to to influence decision making and so the aim is to support the climate movement but obviously that can take a different shape wherever wherever you are and so we do have different focus areas from growing and connecting different organizations and supporting a, a general movement um, but we also have a pillar in dismantling the fossil fuel industry and so I come in where we look at the financing of fossil fuels in particular and here in South Africa, looking at the role of public finance as well. So we haven't necessarily looked uh, specifically at the public budget in particular, but we look a lot at public finance institutions, um, what role they play. But we are recently looking more at the public budget and how we can be involved. And so joining the Budget Justice Coalition and figuring out what role we can play as well and what role the budget can play in, in climate justice. Thank you, Alia. And now that we sort of have a better idea of each guest that we have today and the work that they do, and the organizations that they come from, I think we can jump right into it and ask, perhaps, CD, you spoke about your work at Section 27 um, and the analysis of budgets ensuring that, you know, there is a sensitivity to human rights um, and the obligations that the state has. Could you elaborate a little bit further on what, what you mean by human rights budgeting? And maybe also just expand on what the actual purpose of the budget is. I know it's it's off-putting for a lot of people um, when there are these budget speeches and a lot is said and mm-hmm. people don't really know what's going on and you immediately get turned off. So can you just talk to us what, about what is the purpose of the budget and what we mean by when we say a human rights budgeting? Sure. I agree. I think that the concept of like the budget or the national budget can be quite daunting and confusing and a lot of people maybe 
check out and it's actually so important because it affects all of us everyone in the country pays consumption tax like through vat or you know some people pay like on their salaries and you know at companies and so everyone like we're all in this together and i think all that money all those revenues that the country generates it's in all our interests i think we're all interested in how this fund, like how these funds are actually used, where they go. And in a country like South Africa, which, you know, we speak at length about the inequality is making sure that the funds alleviate those social issues like inequality, um, making sure that people have access to education, to healthcare, to all the things that are promised in the constitution. And so human rights budgeting is, is, you know, simply put like allocating money in a way that is responsive to, to those priorities. I think the budget is very interesting because it's, almost even like a political statement because it tells you when you allocate money to certain things, how you spend your money, that reflects your your values. And so when there's money that's being taken away, so like right now we're living in a context where the national budget is being criticized for some of the cuts to social spending. For example, like education, like over the past few years, the the school, like the learner base or from a healthcare perspective, the number of users of healthcare, um, they've increased and the inflate, like the cost of living has gone up and we all know that. And so, however, like the budget for education, for like fixing schools, making sure that schools aren't built of inappropriate materials and the budget for healthcare and all of that, like that's not increasing in line with inflation. And so that means over time, they're actually cutting the budget for that. And so it gives an implication that there's less money. So now there's less money to realize these human rights. Um, what does that mean for inequality? Well, it means that the people who need, who rely on basic education the most are they're hard done by this. They have less funding to access that education. So it widens the inequality in access to education. And it's the same story for healthcare. So human rights budgeting is saying, no, let's actually allocate this money in a way that responds to the needs of people in South Africa and make sure that everyone has access to their uh, socioeconomic rights. Thank you very much for that. I think you've quite, you've elucidated quite clearly what um, the purpose of the budget is or ex- what it should be. Um, and, you know, in the context of increased austerity, we know that this is quite an important issue for us to discuss. And yeah, the impact of this austerity on human rights, the state's human rights obligations, right? But maybe go, go to, to Alia and to ask, you know, what are the intersections between climate justice and human rights budgeting? Yeah, of course. And thanks, Judy, for that beautiful introduction. Um, It reminds me of a quote I saw the other day that said, uh, the sign of a healthy economy should be a drinkable river. And I think that really exemplifies the connections between our economic system, the budget, what the budget should be for, and the environment around us. Because at its core, climate change is a problem uh, of our financial and economic system. And as we've started to say, the impacts of climate change really undermine our human rights and development gains that, that we've seen. And so the important topic of adaptation is what's on the agenda today. And I think for me, what really 
impacted the way that I work or the way we work in the sector is that our current economy and the financial system is one that favors, let's say, not middle class anymore, but uh, upper and, and elite classes. And so as we see a worsening impact or the worsening impacts of climate change, it really becomes clear that those who are able to afford to cope, cope better. And so the importance of our public budget, and especially in conditions of austerity, um, to realize socioeconomic rights and human rights becomes incredibly important. Well, we do see the most basic of human rights being infringed upon for, for the most vulnerable, which then has um, a knock-on effect of our democracy as well, which means citizens are not able to equally access their rights or just have rights to their own self-determination. How do you um, live as a, as a citizen with different impacts as climate change impacts all, education, food, um, healthcare, and, and so on? Thank you for that, Dahlia. Ellen, could you please maybe come in on, on climate finance and perhaps speak about um, what are the international obligations to fund um, these adaptation efforts um, and perhaps speak a bit to the local obligations as well um, for, for adaptation efforts. So we know that adaptation is already a priority in South Africa due to our vulnerability to climate impacts that we are already experiencing. So we can no longer do development work without considering adaptation. The question is who should pay for the additional costs of development that are due to climate change impacts? And Partly, we need to cover the costs of development by drawing on our national budgets for infrastructure build, for example, and partly we need to draw on international climate finance. So there are international obligations under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change for those who cause the problem of climate change to pay to fix it, both in terms of mitigation i.e. reducing our emissions to climate change and in terms of adaptation when we're talking about how we adapt to the changing climate. These funds come into developing countries either directly from a developed country, what we call bilateral funding, or through climate funds like the Adaptation Fund and the Green Climate Fund. And these funds do also often now have mechanisms for national institutions, like in South Africa, our South African National Biodiversity Institute, to directly access these funds and channel them to the local level. The Green Climate Fund, for example, is supposed to channel 50% of its funds towards adaptation. But in practice, this has been way less. And currently, of the climate finance that we've tracked reaching South Africa, only 1% has targeted adaptation. So we also have our own obligations in South Africa, both as a polluter to reduce our emissions and to, to support the development of our local population. And of course, the private sector will also need to adapt. I'm not even talking about social obligations of the private sector, but merely to cope with the changing conditions. There are a number of actions that they will need to take. Different levels of government also have different obligations, for example, relating to housing, schooling, water. So national government may coordinate policy, 
uh, coordinate the flow of international funds, and then different sectors and departments will have different obligations. And the provincial and local levels are often involved more directly in service delivery. So each sector should by now have a vulnerability assessment, assessing their vulnerability to climate change, and a plan for how they're going to adapt. And each municipality needs to have that as well. I'll give you an example of the education sector where national government will set the norms and standards and make funds available. Provincial government will also be important for helping ensure implementation, but local government also plays a role in ensuring that the necessary infrastructure is available and maintains this infrastructure and provides service delivery, for example, water, electricity, sewage to education institutions. So we need all three of these levels of government to work together to help us adapt to climate change. At the moment, I think it's very clear that not enough of this climate funding is reaching the local level. Thanks for that, Ellen. And I like the example that you make with the education sector in particular and each sector having to to create its own sectoral plan for adaptation. Um, I just say that because Recently, we made comments on the climate change bill. Um, and one of the things that we had noticed is that in as much as the Department of Education or the education sector has these norms and standards uh, for school infrastructure, there is no coordinated plan. There is no sectoral plan for adaptation. I just want to, to throw the question to, to you, CD. Can we actually call our budget climate friendly? Are there relevant considerations going into the planning, into the drawing up of these budgets? Um, can we really say that they're climate friendly or green as so-called? Okay, controversial question. <laughs> I'm kidding, maybe not. Um, uh, seriously, I think that we're not there yet in terms of our budget. I don't think our budget is climate responsive. So there is a, a theory or way of doing things like, call, like climate responsive budgeting. And that is... For example, floods um, or droughts that have been occurring, um, when you read the national budget and you open that, um, the sort of terminology, while the president or maybe other people will acknowledge that its impact or th these things are caused by a climate crisis or refer to climate change, uh, the national budget itself doesn't really use that terminology in that way. And the way that the funding has been reallocated, especially like, for instance, like building, rebuilding schools. Uh, it'll be, yes, in response to a natural disaster, whatever it is, or flooding, but it's not proactive in considering how to make schools and, and how, like, you know, clinics and hospitals climate resilient. Um, so there's still funding is still going back to like responding to some of the issues of the past or like the backlog that's been caused like infrastructure backlogs that have been caused by COVID, but not actually thinking proactively about how do we ensure, you know, how do we make sure that all schools are built in a way that's resilient to climate? And I think Ellen, you mentioned the norms and standards, like there's still schools that are built of inappropriate materials. And so these learners who go to those schools are more vulnerable to schools being closed down because of the floods and the droughts. Um, and their education attainment is affected, but the funding you know, it's only increasing, like infrastructure is only increasing in line with inflation or just barely and not actually proactive and saying, let's build climate resilient schools or let's build climate resilient hospitals and facilities. And yeah, so at this point, no, 
but um, there are conversations and it's, it's great that civil society and the general public are having these conversations. Protests now are more, uh, I noticed there was a protest on June 16, the Youth Day, um, and a lot of the, the conversation was in addition to the issues that are, that are plaguing, um, young people, like unemployment, there was a con, like there was that intersectionality about the climate crisis right now and how we respond to that. So I just think, you know, right now we're not where we need to be, but there's an opportunity. We can actually get there. Um, and that's by advocating for climate responsive budgeting. And I think we'll unpack a little bit on that a bit later on how we get our budget to where we want it to be, um, get it to become um, climate responsive cli- or climate friendly. But I just want to jump back to something that Ellen had touched on um, around adaptation. Um, Ellen, can you just take us through um, this concept of adaptation and what it means um, in the context of the climate crisis? And if you could just use the impact of climate change on, on access to education, healthcare, as an example, I think that would you know, clarify what we mean by adaptation. Climate change adaptation means the ways that we need to change our behavior and our systems to accommodate either actual or expected climate change and its impacts. So this means both the broader processes and the specific steps that we need to take, and these will vary very much from place to place. So some may be structural or physical responses like involving engineering or ecosystem-based solutions, and some may be social and institutional measures that we need to take to protect those who are vulnerable to climate impacts. So farmers may need to change the way that they farm uh, due to changes in uh, rainfall and temperatures. But in cities, for example, we may be experiencing more prolonged droughts or more frequent flooding events. And I can give you some examples of that from the 2015 to 2018 drought in the city of Cape Town and perhaps um, our more recent 2022 KZN floods. Now, it's very difficult sometimes to identify which extreme events are specifically due to climate change. And we need to look at a pattern of impacts over time. So climate change means that our temperatures are gradually rising. And we're likely to see more frequent and more prolonged extreme events. So most of South Africa will see a drying trend um, with some wetter over the east coast, which is where the city of Durban is that had the recent flooding. And the increase in temperatures are also likely to increase that drying. But our rainfall is also likely to come less frequently, but all at once. And this leads to the extreme events from drought on the one extreme to flooding on the other. If we look at what this means um, for local school learners, for example, in Durban of the recent flooding, a lot of these learners at poorer schools live in informal housing um, in areas which are f- flood prone and maybe on steep slopes, which are susceptible to mudslides. When there's flooding that affects them not only at home, but the way that they can access schools and healthcare, how do you get to school if the river is flooding and the road is washed away? The water supply is now also affected in that whole region. So your access to clean water and sanitation um, affects school learners, but also the healthcare system. The sewerage works in Durban have also been impacted and damaged, which has led to a lot of pollution. 
And climate change means that we're likely to see more of these more severe flooding events more frequently. So to adapt to the change, we need to have more safe and adequate housing. We need to have stormwater drainage that can cope with this level of rainfall, early warning systems to warn people that these extreme events are coming that can reach them. And then knowledge and awareness of what these impacts are likely to be so that we can plan for them. Perhaps a more relevant and more recent example of droughts, not just the city of Cape Town, is there's currently a drought in the Eastern Cape, which has been very prolonged. And it's those in the poorer areas that are likely to be cut off from their water system first, again affecting their access to drinking water and health. One of the options for dealing with this is drilling boreholes. This is a, a costly process. We also need national infrastructure. I was talking about the different levels of government addressing the issue to ensure that there is adequate um, building of dams for water supply to cope with prolonged drought periods. Heat stress is going to particularly affect those in poorly equipped schools. So if you are in a mud school, which perhaps has poor insulation, that's going to affect your ability to learn. And also if you're walking to school and back, if it's getting hotter, and it's hot and dry, that's going to be far more challenging. I'll leave it there, but there are a number of other um, impacts on healthcare. For example, the spread of malaria in South Africa to new areas that haven't previously been affected, um, the risk of injury due to floods and extreme events. There are a whole lot of impacts that we should be planning for at a national level, at a local level, and helping people to find their own solutions to adapting to these changes. If they know what's coming and they have already some of their own solutions to coping with these, can we help them work through the process of identifying their own solutions to climate change? Thank you for that insightful answer, Ellen. You've underscored the importance of, of knowledge and awareness, but it also sounds to me like a large part of adaptation is government actually realizing its current obligations or the state realizing its current obligations. Um, and I think it's something that CD had also touched on around schools that are already vulnerable, currently becoming more vulnerable in the circumstances of uh, an extreme weather event. But you've really painted a, a full picture to us of what the impact looks like and what some of those adaptation measures need to look like as well. But to also just then throw it as an open question um, to all our guests today is how do we envision the budget as a, as a tool for climate justice? So put differently, how can a budget justice frame and criteria be deployed to influence the prioritizing of health and education funding as the work of climate adaptation? Alia? I think fundamentally addressing climate change as a human rights issue, first and foremost, is one of the ways that puts people at the center of actions in an equitable way, because access to human rights should be inalienable and, and universal. And so looking at that framing, you know, I come from more of a climate change perspective, but using that framing um, and then looking at the budget, as has been mentioned before, prioritizes planning and then budget allocation towards towards that planning. 
And so this would be, I think, a radical shift, as we know already that the budget is not human rights forward or is not people-centered in the way that it's planned or, or allocated. And this is a drastic difference away from looking at economic growth and GDP um, as the center of our budget objectives. And this shift in itself, I believe, also moves away from looking at the environment as something to be extracted from and moving away from people as a labor force to be to be exploited. And so this could be a fundamental way to actually shift our perspective and using the budget to do so. Because looking at what the budget should be doing from a climate change perspective as well, it should be consistent with our climate change objectives. And that would be to mitigate emissions, but also produce uh, climate resilient development. Civil society then has a particularly important role to play when using the budget as well, but within climate justice, to increase the ambitions of our climate change objectives, but also to shape the, allo the allocation and the execution of our public budget. And particularly when it comes to climate justice, um, as Ellen mentioned, there are increasingly growing number of actors from climate finance, actors, bilateral finances, private finances, but the role of public participation is essential in something like the public budget to not only incentivize, but to guide the participation of other actors in a way that puts human rights at, at the center. And so using the public budget as an accountability tool becomes incredibly important to put people at the center of climate change and climate justice. And I think within that framing, then positioning, especially education and, and healthcare. Thank you, Alia. Very important point that you raised there, putting people at the center. I'm not sure if anyone else would like to contribute to that. Ellen? Yeah, I'd like to add a little on the climate finance um, side of things. I really think we do need to improve access to climate finance at the local level. This means both uh, local actors and local government. So, Currently, we lack a national climate finance strategy to channel the limited available international climate funds to where they're most needed and those who are most vulnerable. So I think that needs to be developed in a way that's very consultative uh, with a range of stakeholders involved. Um, we also need to be better at tracking the climate finance that is spent and, and tracking adaptation spend more broadly. So this isn't just the international funds coming in, but also national spend, whether it's the private sector, uh, government departments, how much are we actually spending on climate change adaptation? We don't really know at the moment. So Treasury is piloting some measures at the moment, but a comprehensive system will require quite a lot of capacity, particularly at the local level. So we need to find a balance between tracking accurately and doing this in a way that is manageable. And then transparency is also key. So currently there are negotiations under the way for, for a climate finance package to support the just energy transition. It was announced in 2021 where a bunch of developed nations, including the U.S., um, the EU, and a number of other countries within the EU, funding South Africa to transition away from our dirty coal energy to more renewable options. But all the negotiations around this are happening at the moment behind closed doors. And there's 
as far as we can tell, very little discussion of how much adaptation is part of this just transition. It's not just an energy transition, but the impacts are also on the people of South Africa, climate impacts that we need to take uh, seriously. So we have a number of obligations at a national level to address um, access to finance at the local level. Um, at the moment, there are infrastructure grants available, but they aren't specific to adaptation. And we need to match this with the international finance coming in to make sure that your grant periods are not so mismatched that it's very difficult to access that funding, that the capacity at the local level is built in a sustainable way, that you don't just provide once-off trainings to local government people in the environment department, but you have capacity across finance and different sector departments to access this money from a range of sources and pair them in a way that our local obligations match with the international obligations. And that way, adaptation, which is very locally specific, can be carried out by local actors. Mm. Thank you for that. Quite insightful. Um, quite a number of changes or things that need to be done at institutional level involving Treasury. But I think the, the, the call for transparency is one which is quite important because We've been hearing of all these funds that have been sourced from international sources, but we never really know or see where that, where that goes, where that money gets allocated to. Which leads me to my next question and perhaps to start off to throw it back again to you, um, Ellen, um, around perhaps on this transparency issue and to any other issue that we think is needed. How is it that we ensure that our budgeting, um, financing is responsive to, to the climate crisis. How do we ensure that sufficient resources are allocated and spent on, on, on responding to this climate crisis? Yeah. So I think we have a good tradition in our new South Africa of consultative processes, but uh, we need to stick with those traditions and make sure that all of our policy-making processes do include a range of stakeholders, not only at the end of the policy development process, but along the way. So we don't get presented with a policy that's already been cooked up at government level and then get asked to rubber stamp it and see it through because we urgently need a bill now. So we need to be involved in the process of developing things like the national climate finance strategy, deciding what the priorities are and what we think, where we think that money should go. Another important aspect is accrediting national institutions to some of these climate funds. It really does help us to ensure that it is national priorities that are prioritizing where the money goes. So we currently have very few national institutions accredited with these large funds and it's quite an onerous process. So we should be starting the process to get more institutions, not just Sanby accredited, to cover a wider range of sectors and also then making smaller packets of funding available at the local level. So they can channel funding in different ways and they can make small grants available, for example, to support local government or to support NGOs who work where government fails to work. That's where the NGO sector often steps in. So making that funding available in a in a manner that is really accessible would be one of the things I'd like to see more of. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Alia? Sure. It's hard to, <laughs> to follow these, but I think I wanted to um, also mention more broadly, you know, an objective of democratizing the budget and democratizing public finance as well. I think finance within a, a neoliberal system is not 
neutral. And I think um, the mentions of consultation and transparency, not only in the adaptation solutions we find, but in the financing as well, is incredibly important. And so one of the objectives of the Paris Agreement, for example, is that finance flows must be consistent with our climate ambitions. But this conversation today also shows that finance flows must be consistent with human rights objectives as well. So where we do see our current medium-term strategic framework, including some elements of climate change ambition, resourcing or capacitation of municipalities, you know, how transparent are these plans or how integrated are human rights within these plans as well? If, you know, climate change is the still sometimes seen as a as a technocratic issue needing a technocratic solution because looking at our then broader budget uses you know we still see plans for new investments in fossil fuels like coal or oil or gas and these investments continue to undermine our climate change ambitions and our emission reduction targets but as we've all said, they also contribute to climate change that undermines development goals and human rights ambitions. And so when it comes to what we're looking for, you know, it's, it will always be more consultation and more transparency and accountability in climate justice action, but in the public budget as well. But also to see the stopping of investments or stopping of new fossil fuel projects and the phasing out of fossil fuel projects as well in a just, in a just manner that leaves no one behind. And looking at the public budget, you know, essentially it could be a tool to redistribute wealth in an unequal society, as as we've said. It, it can be a tool to foster a regenerative economy as well, rather than a harmful or, or extractive one. And the austerity measures, you know, that we see today sometimes falsely place the, an emphasis on a private sector actor rather than public sector actors as well in a neoliberal system that that is prone to crisis and is is prone to harm. And so the mechanisms that we're seeing now that tend to, I think, attract private investors rather than, I think, holding the public budget accountable is something that we can, as civil society, play, play close, pay close attention to because we need the public budget as a climate justice tool as much as a human rights tool. And that's where I think we haven't spoken so much about, but you know, that's where we see a lot of the demands coming from a just recovery centered on radical economic transformations and a radical economic shift as well. Because I think that would then definitely have a knock-on effect on climate, on how we approach and how we prioritize human rights, and essentially how we change our system from a harmful one to a democratic one of, of regeneration. Thank you, Alia. I think from all three responses, um, the themes of transparency, consultation, um, and public participation have come through quite strongly. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone, um, for those very insightful responses. But I think, you know, in closing, I just want us to, to speak a bit to how people who are listening to this, to this podcast episode, who might want to, to get involved, right? How do they go about doing that? Maybe some of the projects that you're working on. And yeah, if you can also just let people know how they can get in contact with you. Can we start with you, Ellen? Great. So how can you get involved? I think the first step is to get informed about climate change and how it will impact you. 
So we all need to be ready for climate change and the changes that it'll bring to uh, the availability of water, for example, the increases in temperature, and our, how we're going to adapt is quite personal. Then I think we also need to get involved. This is not something that we can do alone, and our solution is to work together through networks, which is why we have joined the Adaptation Network and currently host that network. If you'd like to join the network, it is open to anyone who's working in this space, and the web address is adaptationnetwork.org.za. I'm specifically from Indigo Development and Change. And if you're interested in the work that we do, our web address is indigo-dc.org. And lastly, I'd like to encourage you all to monitor and hold our decision makers to account. We need to track where the money is going and ensure it's going to those most in need. Thanks. Thank you. Alia? Thanks. Um, so most of our work can be found on the website 350africa.org. We have some of the, I think, a more well-known campaigns such as the Green New ESCOM campaign uh, that regularly has different actions like petitions or marches to be, to be involved in. Um, so you can find out more online about that. In terms of uh, public finance, we focus a lot on the institutional level to engage with institutions such as the Development Bank of Southern Africa. So as we said already, calling for more inclusion and inclusive decision making, but also for exclusions in terms of fossil fuel financing. So that information can also be found uh, online. But um, like Ellen said, also working in coalitions and networks is is incredibly important. So uh, 350 Africa is also a member of the Fair Finance Coalition that is looking to enhance the accountability of public financial institutions in South Africa or ones that operate in South Africa as well, like the DBSA or like the IDC, but uh, institutions such as the New Development Bank as well. So how can these institutions really be places of change for increased ambition, increased accountability, but increased inclusion as well in how they finance and what they finance? Um, so yeah, 350africa.org on Twitter or the website. Um, and yeah, that's a quick snippet of, of what we're doing and would love for people to join. Thank you very much, Alia. I'm sure that website will get a lot of traffic after this episode. Um, TD? Yeah, so from our side, section27.org.za, our website is, you know, we have a really good media team, if I do say so myself. Um, <laughs> shout out to our media team, but they put up um, a lot of the work that we do in climate, especially climate justice. So on latest news, if you just click on latest news, there's, um, you can see that, uh, section 27 also, um, to echo Alia and Ellen about working together as a movement rather than in silos. So we're also, we also form part of the climate justice coalition. So please, you know, following their work is one way to follow like the work that we do. Thank you. Thank you to our brilliant guests for joining us today. This was a really insightful conversation, and I hope the listeners gained a better understanding of what is really meant by human rights budgeting and why it needs to be integrated into the climate change response. Till we meet again, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. 
To find out more about the coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.